My name is Steve Smith, and I'll be reading from Romans 3, 21 through 31, which follows on from the uh, passage last Sunday. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is it God, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin by saying how much I love this church. I've been here for 25 years, and I love it more every year, I think. And one of the things I love about our church is the diversity of our congregation. Um, there's people all over the map, if you don't know that. Uh, just talk to some of us pastors, and we'll tell you about how all over the map you guys are in terms of your theology, in terms of where you come from. It's a beautiful rainbow of diversity um, and you can see it every Sunday morning when uh, all of you come together and worship uh, because we try to structure a worship service every Sunday morning through music and prayer that is diverse. And uh, we begin with a, a rousing hymn. Uh, we lead into music that is more contemporary in nature, but always a hymn integrated into it. Um, we end our service with uh, Marietta at the piano playing and involving us in music once again. We have a variety of styles of worship, not just musically, but expression. There, there's some people, I sit up front so I don't get to watch all of you, but there's some people with hands raised high. There's some people with heads bowed. There's some people who are afraid of expressing themselves at all, and they just turn inward, but they're still worshiping, right? Uh, that, that happens, and it's okay, all right? There's some people who shout amen, well, at least Deontay does, and other... <laughs> 
I think it's having an influence. Uh, and we all have our own styles. I mean, example as a style, just to embarrass Adam, which he never gets embarrassed. I mean, can you imagine Adam leading a worship song without doing this? <laughs> or, hey, right in the middle of a song, right? That's Adam. It's beautiful. Contrast that to Dr. Brian Horn. <laughs> You would never see him stomp his foot or go, hey, in the middle of a song. I love it. This place is beautiful. Uh, thank you for being a part of this beauty. Um, this morning, we're continuing a series um, that we've broken down into mini-series. Uh, and the mini-series we're in right now is truth. Uh, last week, truth in terms of its title went something like this. Truth, the truth, we have a problem. It's a big problem. I promise you that this truth was going to be depressing. We got a problem. And I promised you that the next week, which is this week, the truth, we have a solution. In a word, it's grace. So last week, let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul said. He described our human condition with a string of verses, most of them from the Psalms, others from Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And he strung these verses together, one right after another, without reference to their location. These people knew the verses. And basically, the uh, assembly of verses is, is like a, a string. There's actually a word that's used in the Hebrew language to describe such things as verses that are put in line together, almost like a great big string. And the word is sharez. It's a word that typically is used to describe a string of beads or a string of pearls. That's kind of ironic because the string that Paul puts together doesn't sound like pearls. Here's what it sounds like. It's the human condition. No one is righteous, not even one. No one really seeks God. No one. Their mouths, these people called humans, are like open graves, and there's a stench rising from their mouths. Their lips have the poison of snakes on them. They're quick to murder, and they don't want peace. When Paul gave that graphic description of humanity, he was trying to tell a bunch of people who were really reliant on following the law of God, you are the same as them, namely the Gentiles. In other words, the whole world is in this big, fat lump called depravity and sin. And even if it's not expressed... As Jesus reminded us, that sin is within our hearts. That was the bad news. That was last week. Now the good news this week. 
First, what I'm describing as a dramatic revelation. Paul says, I have something to tell you that in a way has not yet been revealed until the coming of Jesus, but in another way was always there. Take a look at verse 21. He basically says this word, this revelation I'm going to give you was actually declared by the law and the prophets. It was there. But there's a sense in which we didn't see it. Why did we not see it? Because we didn't see it instantiated in a person. And that person is Jesus. So now we see in the law and the prophets, the instantiation. Maybe that's a strange word for you. It means to be in bodily, in the presence. You see the presence of the law and the prophet's words in Jesus. It was sort of hidden before now, suggests Paul. Now Christ has made it clear. And here is the amazing, dramatic revelation. We are not made righteous by the law. We are made righteous one way and one way only, trusting Jesus. We're made righteous, to put it another way, when we surrender. We're made righteous when we admit our desperate condition. We're made righteous when we surrender, when we give up. This, this might sound counterintuitive for people pursuing righteous. We are made righteous when we stop trying. And when we trust, that's the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. When we stop making excuses, we're cured of the disease of sin by trusting Christ. The second thing, oh, by the way, this promises to be a short sermon. I promise you. Because the word is so concise and so beautiful, we don't need to talk about it forever. We just need to state it. The first is the dramatic revelation. The second is the remarkable reversal. God looks at you and I and affirms all those horrible things about us and humanity, that no one is righteous, not even one. We don't seek God, on and on and on. And he looks at us as we are. And then he says, not guilty. Wait a minute, he's just told us how desperately wicked we are. How can he say, not guilty, but he does. Well, you might say because he's the authoritative judge of the universe and he can make that declaration. But there's more to the story than that. God pronounces us not guilty because of all the wickedness that was just listed. He pronounces us not guilty by taking that wickedness onto himself. 
in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God said, you are not guilty because I'm taking your guilt. You are not guilty because Jesus Christ stood in your place. You are not guilty because he suffered the death that all of us would suffer because of sin. That's why you're not guilty. That's why you need to stop trying. Stop thinking you're okay and surrender to the one who loved you enough to give his life for you. To stand in your place. You know what the response to that is in this passage? He seems to anticipate the response and he says, You you think this is a mockery of justice? You you realize, as I do, that God always judges sin, that he's a just judge? You say, Is this a mockery of justice that God should say not guilty? You're right. It's consistent with sin to say, to, uh, consistent with God who say that he hates sin. It's consistent with the scriptures to say that God's wrath comes down on sin. But what is stunning is that God... God took his own wrath. God took his own wrath. Third is the impossible transformation because of what has happened. Romans 3, that section that we just read, is more fully understand with, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, with a throwaway phrase that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If, if you're interested in searching this one out in a commentary, I would say to you, good luck. Because almost no one develops the idea. They just assume it. Because Paul has already said it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which is my life verse, I hang on for dear life, is God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. That is a divine act of God. And it is a human impossibility. That somehow I could become the righteousness of God. Let me suggest something that um, is a necessary correction to the language that we often use concerning God's wrath. It's not as though God, the vengeful Father, sent his son to die on a cross in some kind of detached way or even in a pathetic way. God wasn't angry with his son. Not at all. God loved his son. 
And as the scriptures say, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God took the punishment for sin. God's wrath on sin, sometimes we think of as personal. Like a person being angry with us for sinning. Really, the picture, it's much bigger than that. God's wrath against sin is against sin. And what sin does to us. God's wrath is against the thing that destroys peace, shalom. God's wrath is against the thing that drives people into decay and destruction and horrible habits. God's wrath is against what brings death out of life. That's what God's wrath is directed towards. And his wrath is directed towards that in the sacrifice of his son. I promise you it would be a short sermon. And I wasn't kidding. I want to end um, with a story. To me, it's a, it's a profound story about this notion of grace. It's a story I've actually read before many years ago, so about two-thirds of you have never heard me read it before. (laughs) And I I want to read it again. It's um, an imaginative parable fiction written by Walter Wangren, who has since gone to be with the Lord. And here's his story. It's called the story of the ragman. Since I saw a strange sight, I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Even before dawn one Friday, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, bright and new, and he was calling out in a clear tenor voice, rags, ah, the air was foul with the first light, filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, he cried, new rags for old, I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in the inner city? But I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, 
and he laid across her palm a clean linen cloth, so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull the card again, the ragman did a strange thing. He took her stained handkerchief and put it on his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman. Like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sun showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out of black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked at this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The girl could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage and removed it and tied it onto his own head, the bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw. For with with the bandage went the wound against his brow it ran a darker and more substantial blood his own rags rags I take old rags cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt now both the sky and my eyes, and the ragman seemed more and more in a hurry. Are you going to work, he asked a man who was leaning up against a telephone pole, and the man shook his head. The ragman pressed him, do you have a job? Are you crazy, sneered the other. And he pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He he had no arm. So said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw for... The ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and the other had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman only had one. Go to work, he said. After he found, uh, afterwards, he found a, a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket. The old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes, and now I had to run to keep up with the ragman. 
Though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling the cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to know I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old rag man, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And then I wanted to help him in what I did, but I hung back hiding. He climbed a hill with tormented labor. He cleared a little space on a hill, and then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junk car and wailed and mourned as one who had no hope because I'd come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know? that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too. And then Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violent noise. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive, and besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow, nor of age, and all the rags he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all I had seen, I walked up to the ragman, and I told him my name with shame. For I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him, with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. And he dressed me. My Lord put new rags on me, and I'm a wonder beside him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Here's the word for us. Whether we've done it before, I would invite you to do it for the first time. Or whether you've done it multiple times. You look at Jesus Christ and you know you're unworthy and you say, Lord, please dress me in your righteousness. And if you do, he will. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that it's not up to us. Because we're not only incomplete, but sorry specimens of righteousness. We thank you that your righteousness becomes our righteousness. 
it's not as though we're perfect. It's not as though we're sinless. It's that we are declared not guilty. We thank you that it is easy and extremely difficult all at the same time. It's easy because we don't have to do the work. It's difficult because we have to surrender. We have to admit who we are. We have to say, Lord, please forgive. So, Lord, help us to take that step for the first time, the second time, or the 1,000th time to say, Lord, dress me in your righteousness. I trust you because that's all we need to do. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.